May we and all beings water the seeds of compassion within ourselves. May we and all beings encourage stopping, calming, resting, and healing for ourselves and others. May we and all beings practice accepting ourselves just as we are, moment after moment after moment. And good morning again, everyone. This morning, our extended series on engaged Buddhism and the engaged Buddhist precepts continues. And this morning, we'll be exploring together the sixth engaged Buddhist precept, which reads, do not maintain anger or hatred. Learn to penetrate and transform them when they are still seeds in your consciousness. As soon as they arise, turn your attention to your breath in order to see and understand the nature of your hatred. And this engaged Buddhist precept is quite clearly an extension of the ninth clear mind precept, which reads, refrain from harboring anger or ill will, encourage dwelling in equanimity. I'm really excited to talk about anger this morning, which might be an interesting attitude to take. Um, in a previous life, I was a teacher, and for the last few years of my teaching career, I taught a course specifically devoted to anger. Um, and that grew out of a course that I had taught for many years on moral excellence or moral virtue. What does the morally excellent person look like? And that older course had a small section on the emotions. What's the emotional life of the emotion? the morally excellent person. And by and large, regardless of one's particular religious leanings or spiritual leanings or philosophical leanings, what people have to say about that is pretty boring. Everyone's gonna be kind and they're gonna be generous and they're gonna be friendly. But when it came to anger, maybe it's not so boring, but I thought it was boring. But when it came to anger, there was a noticeable division among various camps or schools or perspectives. And it often got the students that I was teaching riled up. They really wanted to sort this out. And we can carve the following division. There are some who said that anger is a perfectly appropriate emotion for a morally excellent person to feel just in case it's felt at the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons, towards the right people in the right circumstances. <laughs> Lots of rights, right? Um, it's in this kind of campus perspective that discussions about justified anger, righteous anger arise. You can spin your gears about what those things mean. Another perspective said no. 
anger is a terrible, no good, very bad emotion that ought to be done away with as much as possible. Maybe we can't do away with it entirely, but maybe we can have it occur less than it does. And this doesn't mean stuff it down, not acknowledge it. This means one or more of the conditions necessary for it to arise just doesn't obtain. Usually the belief that you've been wronged in some way. I used to be in that latter camp. I thought anger was a terrible, no good, very bad emotion. Let's just get rid of it. And over the years of teaching that course, I came to find myself in the former camp, that it's actually just fine. As long as all the rights are met, we check all the boxes on our list. And there are reasons why that happened, but I also really enjoyed teaching this course because I loved hearing from students what they had to say about this issue of anger and anger's place in our lives. As you might imagine, the camp in which I originally found myself was the minority. All of my students were like, no, we need anger. We can't get rid of it. Who are you, silly, peaceful person standing in front of the classroom? <laughs> And I found interesting the reasons that they gave. Some of them, as you might expect, said things like, well, biologically speaking, we're hard wired because of years of evolutionary pressures and natural selection and blah, blah, blah. I don't care about that. That's not interesting to me. But here's what was. I started teaching this course just before and during the time in which the Black Lives Matter movement protests were at their heights following the murder of George Floyd. And my students would say to me that large scale social movements like this that attempt to raise awareness and bring change towards large structures that harm lots of people wouldn't happen unless people got angry. If you want large scale societal change, it's necessary that people get angry. I found this shocking. I thought, can't do it from a place of compassion and kindness for those that are suffering that can't motivate you to bring about change. You have to get angry. And more shocking still was something that a particular student said to me one term. I had just handed back their first papers. The students styled themselves as an A student. They did not earn an A on their first paper. They earned, I don't know, C plus or a B minus, not in accordance with the way in which they thought about themselves. And this student said, as we were having a discussion about the necessity of anger, I won't do better on the next assignment unless I get angry with myself now. Mm -hmm. 
I won't be able to improve the mark that I've earned unless I get angry about this now. It's necessary for me to be motivated to do better that I get angry. It's been some years since that student said that to me, but it stuck with me. I thought that was a really interesting answer to give. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to explore that answer a bit. See what at least my own experiences show me about why that might be the case. Because it doesn't sit well with me. It really doesn't. So I want to start with Bodhidharma and Bodhidharma's particular formulation of the precept that concerns anger. Bodhidharma is a very old, long dead ancestor comes to China from India to spread the Dharma. And Bodhidharma writes the following. Self-nature is mysteriously profound. In the midst of selfless truth, truth of selflessness, no measuring of oneself is called the precept of not being angry. No measuring of oneself is called the precept of not being angry. I don't know why that's the phrase that stands out, but it is. And when I think about the student that said this thing to me, I can tell a story according to which it makes sense. The student styles themselves in a particular way. The mark they've earned on their assignment doesn't accord with the way in which they've styled themselves. They've measured themselves against that standard to which they hold themselves, realize that there's a gap. I think all of us have done this at some point or other in our work lives, in our personal lives, in our spiritual lives, we have an idea and we realize we don't measure up to that idea that there's some separation between us and the way we'd like to be. And so the student says as a way of closing that gap, making it less substantial than it is, that they need to get angry. Unless I get angry, I'm not gonna be motivated to do better. This brings me some way towards answering why the student answered as they did, but there's still a gap. I can't quite understand why recognizing that there's a gap between where I am and where I'd like to be anger is the necessary bridge between the two. I still don't understand why compassion and understanding could be equally powerful motivators. So it's at this point that I decide to take the focus off of the student and I start thinking about myself. 
because I too engaged in this kind of behavior for years and would beat myself up over not living up to standards that I had set for myself. And I started thinking about my upbringing, about the way in which in my childhood, undesirable behavior was corrected by my parents. I have no data to support this, but I think I'm part of the last generation where spanking was an acceptable behavior for disciplining your child. I have no data, but based on headlines I've seen, it's out of fashion these days, perhaps rightly so. I got spanked as a kid. All of my siblings did. There was no belt, thank goodness, but it wasn't needed. My dad's hand is large enough. It's just fine all on its own. My mom's hand is not large, but she knew how to wield a wooden spoon rather well. And I have very clear memories of one of my younger siblings misbehaving and my mom can't reason with them. So off she went to the stove right next to the stove. That's where all the spoons were. And off she went. Whack. I also remember, this might come as no surprise to some of you, getting my mouth washed out with soap. Because I have a bit of a mouth on me, <laughs> in case you couldn't tell. And I would, and I was always right, mouth off to my parents about something or other. And my dad would drag me into the bathroom and... <laughs> right? as though there was actually something dirty in my mouth that needed to be washed out. And that's why I was sassy and correct all the time. It's not hard to understand what's going on here. The aim of my parents and so many others was to produce an unpleasant experience in close enough proximity to some behavior to discourage future instances of that behavior. Did not feel good to get spanked. Did not feel good to have soap in my mouth. Do it close enough to when I'm correct, maybe I'll start intentionally being wrong. I'm gonna keep writing that because I am right about a lot of things. Teenage me was anyways. As we grow older, I don't think many of us are likely to continue spanking ourselves or whenever you say something unskillful to a coworker, a sangha member, your partner, march yourself into the bathroom and punish yourself in the way that you were when you were a child. But here's something we can do. We can get angry at ourselves for doing that. Never once when I saw my mom march out of the kitchen towards my younger sisters or my younger brother was she smiling. 
Never once when my dad dragged me into the bathroom did he have a smile on his face. He was angry. And I can do that same thing. I can verbally abuse myself. I can mentally abuse myself. I can get so angry and beat myself up so much that it becomes so unpleasant that never again am I not going to study for an exam. Never again am I going to say something unkind. I'll always think this time before I speak in the future. I can put this learned behavior into practice all by myself in an effort to do better, to be better in the future. And so I started to wonder what it would be like if instead of this way of reacting to the misbehaving of children, Misbehaving doesn't even seem quite right. We encouraged conversation and understanding and patience and tolerance. Wouldn't even have to do this on a grand scale in a way that can sometimes be paralyzing, just in your home, in your workplace. With this insight in mind, I then started thinking about something we talked about last week. Mado gave a talk in which she discussed a teaching from Nagarjuna, arguably the greatest Buddhist philosopher since Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha. And what Nagarjuna calls the eight worldly winds wins that we can put into two categories. In one category, we have pleasure and we have gain and we have praise and we have And in the other category, we have pain and we have loss and we have blame and we have obscurity or insignificance. We want all of the former We want pleasure in our lives and to get lots of things and all the praise and to be seen. We want to avoid all of the latter. Less pain, no pain, no loss, no blame. We don't want to be insignificant. And so following the Garjana's lead, I started thinking in a rather abstract way about what I'll call two of the great winds of good and bad that push us around in our lives. And how from a certain perspective, these winds can be really destructive. I think based on my own upbringing and my recollections of that, that I was conditioned to pursue, to acquire, to have only the former and to avoid and get rid of and shun the latter. And this has continued into present day. And sometimes in seemingly harmless ways, if you've ever left a job or ended a friendship or ended a romantic relationship, someone might say to you, 
hey, just take the good and leave the bad. That seems like a pretty harmless thing to say, but it's a way of conditioning ourselves to say we only want the good things. We don't want the bad things when our life is inevitably going to contain a beautiful mixture of both. And this, coupled with values prized by our cultural or social environments. A few weeks ago, we were focusing on busyness and the way in which being active and social and having busy calendars is prized for us. can lead to the following kind of judgments that we make about ourselves. If I feel lazy, well, that's a sign that I need to get motivated again. Yeah. I need to get out there and do more stuff. My calendar's not full. I need to get out there so I can be famous get all the praise. If I'm quiet at a gathering, well, this is a sign that I need to work on my social skills. Can't just be quiet in the corner and be a wallflower. I gotta be taking selfies with everybody. Get lots of likes, social media. If I lean on others for support, well, this is a sign that I need to be more self-reliant. Can't depend on others. Gotta pull myself up by my own bootstraps. If I gain weight, it's a sign that I need to hit the gym. Gotta maintain that beach bod. <laughs> that six pack. I'm quite content with my one pack here. <laughs> we laugh, and I'm very comforted by the fact that we laugh because we see something absurd about these statements, and yet they're so pervasive. These statements were taken from an article that Mado sent to me, and I'm very grateful that she did. There's statements that follow a quote from Carl Jung that I really haven't been able to shake for the past few weeks since I first read it, actually since Mado first said it to me in Dokusan. The inspiration for this entire article, this quote reads, I would rather be whole than good. I would rather be whole than good. There's a boldness in this kind of statement because it seems to cast off or set to one side a dominant way of thinking about ourselves and what's important in our lives. 
I put it in the same category as a statement said by a Dharma teacher that I'm fond of, Suze Vanessa Goddard, who in an article on the Loving Kindness Sutra, which we chanted this morning, said that that first part of the sutra, where it outlines a kind of character who's peaceful and calm and wise and skillful and not proud and demanding in nature, is the kind of character of someone who's chosen to be free rather than right. Represents a really radical shift in our orientation towards the world. And so I started to wonder what would life be like if we, like Young, said we would rather be whole than good? Could it be that laziness was just a sign that we needed to slow down for a bit? Instead of a need to get motivated again. that quietness at a gathering wasn't a sign that I needed to work on my social skills, but a way of acknowledging that I enjoy being in the observer role. I like people watching. If depending on others was a sign of the closeness of our relationship, the trust that's present and the comfort that I feel when I'm in their presence, If weight gain were just a sign that I went somewhere and had delicious food with other people and <laughs> celebrated. Thanksgiving is coming. <laughs> if that student's reaction to the mark they received on their assignment was just, hey, I'm going to learn a lot more in this course than I might have thought I Perhaps at the most abstract level, if I didn't feel a need to identify something about my present condition as bad or in need of fixing, what would the world be like if I could accept all that I am in every moment and be all right with that? With these questions in mind, I'd like to leave you with the following this morning, inspired by what Young wrote. You cannot fail to be whole. Dogen writes in the Genjo Koan that no creature ever falls short of its own completion. Wherever it stands, it completely covers the ground. But it's very difficult to accept the way that you are whole in every moment. Our root teacher, Kobanchino Roshi, sometimes says that our practice is self-acceptance and it's the hardest thing to do. Thank you very much. Thank you.